They would abduct them, they would then shoot them, and usually the body would be left on a roadside with a placard on it, spies and informers beware. Sometimes, though, the IRA would actually hide the bodies of those they had killed. They would disappear them. Gordon was duly executed at Castle Farm, Dunboyne. I took charge. Before his execution, he wept. I said, we have given you more time than you gave your unfortunate victim. My dad's open statement was extraordinary. I was brought up with hatred of England. My father always told me that nothing good ever came from it, not even the wind. It's a bright May morning in the reading room of the military archives in Cahalbrua Barracks in Rathmines. Half a dozen files have been laid out all around us. They relate to the activities of two families during the Anglo-Irish War the McKennas and the Clintons from the Cavan-Meath border country around the village of Mulla. I happen to be the great-grandson of T.P. McKenna Sr. and Sarah Clinton, the couple married in 1890 that links these two families. With me is their great-great-grandson. You know, uh, over a hundred years ago, something that you know, feels quite remote just leaps out at the page from you. You may have heard of him. His name is Philip Boucher Hayes. He's a hotshot reporter who's come under fire in a number of war zones, some literal, some metaphorical. As an extended family, we're all very proud of him, though of course we would never tell him that because we're also very Irish. I fear I'm here because I'm going to get, well, the 12-year-old me fears I'm going to get an Uncle Miles lecture. Philip is about to find out, however, that he's not the first member of his family to face hostile fire. And the fact that he has survived some close calls means he's fared far better than at least one of his unfortunate antecedents. But the eight-year-old me remembers Nana talking about the black and tans. This is my great-grandmother, your grandmother, that her brothers were the cause of the black and tans coming to the house. That's interesting because I don't even remember her talking about her brothers. I remember her talking about the black and tans and I was absolutely fascinated when I was an eight-year-old and even a 12-year-old. But at a certain point when I began to learn more about Irish history, I thought, oh, come on, this is total rubbish. Why would anybody, why would any black and self-respecting black and tan want to go anywhere near my grandmother's house? And only subsequently did I realise that she had three brothers who were on the run and a fourth brother. I knew about the fourth brother who was a TD MP and who uh, who voted in the treaty debate. There was an uneasy mix I even remember this as a nine, ten year old. There was an uneasy mix of wanting to talk about it. Obviously I had a better connection with her than you did uh, but also we can't talk about it. What nobody wanted to talk about was the broken lives and the three killings at the centre of the story of the four McKennas and the five Clintons whose participation in the War of Independence is narrated in the files gathered around us. References in the witness statements of the Bureau of Military History to T.P. McKenna Sr. of Muller, County Cavan, vary from the disparaging, owing to his long-standing support for the Irish Parliamentary Party, 
to the positive based on his conversion to the Sinn Féin cause and his successful stumping for Arthur Griffith in the 1918 East Cavan by-election. His son Justin went on to win a seat for Sinn Féin in the Louth Meath constituency in the 1921 general election. Two of his other sons, Raphael and John, served in the Meath Brigade of the IRA as intelligence officer and quartermaster. But it was his youngest son, also called TP, who had the most compelling and ultimately damaging experience during the Anglo-Irish War. I know a little bit about some of the brothers, TP McKenna, being the one that I know the most about because, well, number one... T.P. Jr. T.P. Jr. because, well, Muller of County Cavan's most famous son is T.P. McKenna, the actor. This was his uncle? That would be his uncle, yeah. yeah. T.P. McKenna would be his uncle. And okay. uh, the other T.P. McKenna was obviously his grandfather. What did Thomas Patrick McKenna get up to? Um, quite a lot because what we have here is his military services pensions application, which he submitted after retiring in quotes, from the National Army post-Civil War. He was 24 years of age. At which point, it's best to defer to the McKenna family historian, Stephen McKenna, now based in London. He's the grandson of former IRA volunteer Raphael and great-grandson of T.P. Senior and Sarah Clinton. He takes up the story of T.P. McKenna Jr., from the time he was sent down from Dublin, where he was a medical student and uh, IRA volunteer in the same year in UCD as Kevin Barry, to his hometown of Mulla, to help with the organisation of an active service unit or flying column in the area. At that stage, it's uh, 1921, and they're having a reorganisation of the brigade structure. And at that point, they create the 3rd Meath Brigade, and he becomes a member of the Mulla Company of the 3rd Meath Brigade. Precisely, he becomes the adjutant to the brigade. It's a bit of a family affair because his brother Rafe is the intelligence officer, his brother John is the quartermaster, and a cousin, Dick McKenna, is the engineer for the brigade. So what kind of things was that brigade actually involved in? There's a summary which... uh, is in the archives and it includes things like military training operations, dispatch services, organisation work, volunteer police services, but then as the activities of the brigade move on, raiding for and capturing of arms, military training, destruction of Muller barracks, attempted ambushes on British forces and also a destruction of bridges and so on. So for the most part their work is preparation being ready for something bigger and causing such disruption as they can. Let's be clear about one thing. The North Midlands, bar the Longford bailiwick of Sean McKeown, was not a noted cockpit of the War of Independence. There were no Kilmichaels and, bar the burning of the town of Trim in County Meath in September 1920, no major black and tan or auxiliary reprisals. Well, I'd say Meath is usually described as a fairly quiet county during that period, but it probably wasn't as quiet as all that. Frank Cogan is a local historian who's made a particular study of Meath in the 1919-21 to 21 period. His uncle, Commandant Seamus Cogan, was one of the few IRA fatalities of the conflict in the county. Michael Hopkinson more or less dismisses it as one of these counties where nothing happened, but that's not true. Even the RIC district inspector's report describes the county as as very troubled during that period. 
especially the later part of the War of Independence. And there are reports of quite frequent acts of violence and of disruption, particularly things like road trenching and so on, which caused the military and uh, police authorities quite a lot of worry at that time. The Meath Brigade of the IRA was under the activist command of 1916 veteran and IRB member Sean Boylan. War-related fatalities barely crept beyond a dozen, three each being Republican volunteers and members of the RIC. Up to half the deaths, however, were of alleged spies and informers shot by the IRA. This is where the story of the McKennas and their cousins, the Clintons, moves out of the realms of the ordinary. Yeah, I see this section. The question that is asked is, what military services did the applicant render? The answer, applicant took part in engagements in Dublin and was wanted by the British, which could be a very, very oblique and succinct way of talking about the Kevin Barry ambush. But he was a part of that. I mean, that's part of the family history I know. And he was on the run. Yeah, it goes on to say he was appointed adjutant 3rd Meath Brigade during this period. Now, on the facing page, there is uh, a further question about military services and military engagement oh, that he was involved my in. my God. The question is, what military services did the applicant render? And his answer is, took part with ASU, Active Service Unit, at Muller, executed spy at Carlinstown, organised and trained the brigade, but executed a spy. That's quite chilling. Yeah. When I saw that, I saw that online because obviously you're holding the actual application in your hand, but all of these applications are available online. And when I saw that online, I had the same reaction that uh, that you did. Carlinstown, um, as a Kells man, Carlinstown is uh, a few kilometres just down the road outside Kells. And this, I mean, Mulla is in County Cavan, but its hinterland really is County Meath. It's in the or it was in the Kells Postal District. It was in the Kells Poor Law uh, Union. So it's it's main hinterland. It's East Cavan, but its main hinterland is North Meath. It's as shocking as hell though, Miles. I mean, just four words, Mm. executed spy at Carlinstown. You hear stories about what went on during the War of Independence and the Civil War, but to actually put a bullet in somebody's chest or in somebody's head is a frightening thing to Mm. contemplate. And... Obviously, the first thing, and the question you're probably formulating, but certainly the question I formulated, who was it? Who was the victim? Well, I suppose there would have been a lot of people suspected of being involved, having connections to the the RIC, and anyone who was interacting with them and with the British Army would have been suspected of of being a spy. Paragog O'Rourke is the author of Truce, Murder, Myth and the Last Days of the War of Independence. He's made a detailed study for the Atlas of the Irish Revolution of IRA executions during the Anglo-Irish War. The IRA weren't trigger-happy in a lot of cases. What they would do is they would try and investigate this. They would raid the mails, they would try and get letters or some piece of incriminating evidence. In very few cases, we actually have that evidence uh, surviving. But sometimes people executed as spies. Um, records in the, uh, the British archives would actually show that the IRA would seem to have been right, uh, that they got some of the, the right people. And I suppose once they had 
identified a suspect, they had watched them, found what they considered sufficient evidence, they would then abduct them, they would then shoot them and usually the body would be left on a roadside with a placard on it, spies and informers beware, convicted spies shot by IRA and that was very much a warning to other potential spies in the area. Sometimes though the IRA would actually hide the bodies of those they had killed, they would disappear them. On former occasions in the fight for Irish freedom, there were spies and informers in plenty, and so it was in our period, from 1913 to 1921. We had our share of spies, and we dealt with them severely. Sean Farrelly was an IRA volunteer from Carneross, a small village in North Meath. His brother Pat was local company commander. There were two IRA executions in North Meath in 1921. The first that of a postman named Bradley, comes too early to have involved T.P. McKenna. The second killing of an alleged spy that year came just weeks before the July truce that ended hostilities in the War of Independence. Another young man named Keelan from Kilmainham Wood was very intimate with the Tans. It was known he was giving them whatever he could. The IRA thought that by giving him a fright, he might realise the gravity of his behaviour, so he was arrested and taken to an unknown destination. This was an unused house in Lower Leitrim, the property of a Miss McMahon of Mullah. After being detained for a few weeks, he was severely cautioned and released. It was misplaced leniency. After his release, he travelled the countryside with the Tans in their raids and brought them to the house in which he had been detained. They burned it to the ground. He was kept under observation and at the first opportunity was re-arrested. At the court-martial, which followed, he was found guilty and was later executed. In the case of Patrick Keelan, it appears that there was more than one IRA volunteer involved in his killing, and that it was something of a family affair. TP's cousin Peter Clinton and his brother John were also involved. Robert McAvoy, an archivist working on the Military Service Pensions Collection in Cahalborough Barracks, has seen John McKenna's application and read an account of his mandatory pension interview. So he's brought in in June 1937 and they do actually specifically ask him in relation to this execution of the spy who it turns out is Patrick Keelan, were you actually in his execution to which he says yes and they dig a little deeper by asking were you in the firing party again to which he says yes he was. In addition one of Sarah Clinton's cousins Peter by his own account also figured in the execution of Patrick Keelan. So let's go back over here and this is his military service pension application for Peter Clinton. Now What's crucial is the time period involved here because we're talking here about April, 21st of April 1921 to the 11th of July 1921. So that's the context for this. Have a look at that. Okay. He says that he took part in the breaking of bridges and the blocking of roads and took part in the execution of a sentenced spy. Not the same spy. I suspect that it has to be the same spy because of the time period time involved. Period. Bradley would have been already dead, I think, by April 1921. So I suspect that um, Peter, Clinton Peter Clinton and T.P. McKenna, McKenna were both, shot the yeah, same man. We're both involved in the shooting party. 
The IRA, um, the title Irish Republican Army, they think of themselves very much as an army and a fighting force and they try to model themselves in the British. So even the thing of shooting an alleged spy and labelling their body with a placard, that's something the British Army had done to alleged spies in the First World War. Often the IRA would line up a firing squad to shoot alleged spies and this was done again copying the British practice but the idea is that no one person has the moral responsibility of having carried out that execution. One gun would be blank. Um, Traditionally that was the British way of doing it Um, you know the IRA were were very poorly armed I don't think they had blanks but the idea was that you took kind of a collective responsibility it's not one person killing another it's a a group action. In some cases though the IRA would just simply have uh, it would have been one uh, volunteer with a revolver who may have done it. In some cases I'm thinking of the Drumkeen ambush in Limerick where the IRA captured two members of the RIC and two IRA volunteers were signed to go and shoot them and one of them, Morris Mead, who was an ex-soldier from the First World War, he was willing to carry out the execution. The other guy didn't have the nerve to do it so Morris just shot both of them. So again, it depends on the circumstance but it was a mixture of use of formal firing squads copying the British and sometimes it was just a single person delivering the shot. T.P. McKenna took the Free State side in the Civil War, joined the National Army and was demobilised in 1924 at the age of 21 as a full colonel. He hoped to resume his medical studies, but his health failed. He suffered from that scourge of early 20th century Ireland, tuberculosis, exacerbated in his case by exposure to the elements while on the run. He was dispatched by his family to the warmer climate of Argentina in the hope of keeping him alive. The plan worked, but not for long. During his sojourn in Buenos Aires, he wrote a number of poems about his War of Independence experience and his feelings of isolation and exile in South America. Deathless verse it certainly is not, but it's deeply poignant nonetheless. Sure God has been kind. He allowed me to find my way all through Aaron's Green Isle. From Donegal to the Mall, through Mayo and all. Sure I saw all the places worthwhile. Sure Kerry and Cork are the angel's own work, and the world has few spots can compare. With Avoca and Down, and the tribesmen's own town, or the green-coated mountains of Clare. But though far o'er the sea, though my body may be, my heart is in Breffney still. For always it thrills for the valleys and rills that cluster round sweet Mulla Hill. He subsists on bits of journalism for the Southern Cross. He spends his time uh, giving English lessons. But all the time, nonetheless, he finds the environment very oppressive. Buenos Aires, at the height of its hottest time, is a, is a very impressive environment. It's not really having the benefit that he had hoped And basically all the time his condition just gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then, once he's been there about a year and a half, his doctors advise him that he needs to seek a higher altitude and they recommend the town of Catamarca, which is at a very high altitude up in the mountains. And the wisdom of the time is that clean, pure air will be good, beneficial for the TB lungs. But at the same time, if you think about it, a high-altitude environment would have been punishing on already injured and scarred lungs. And then, surely enough, quite tragically, he's been there a few weeks and he is hospitalised in Cordova. And he spends the last two months of his life in a hospital in Cordova. And slowly, bit by bit, tragically, he's 
suffocating to death. And he dies on the February the 11th, 1929, aged just 26 years of age. South America's grand, tis a wonderful land, where God's gifts are plain to be seen. But there's only one land made by his own hand, that island eternally green. Now most men grow old, striving daily for gold, but is not for wealth that I yearn. I'll be happy when dead if I pillow my head in the spot where St. Killian was born. Sure, ten times I would rather one clasp from my father than handle a financier's bill, and my mother's kind smile than a millionaire's pile, and I'll find them neat sweet Muller Hill. Let's go on to the other brother then. Okay, Justin. Yes, yeah. well, he's Just, the one I know something yeah, about he's because the one, he's the one yeah. that Nana talked about as being in the second doll and voting on the treaty. Correct, yeah. He was not, as far as we can gather, in the IRA, but he was lifted. He was interned in the Curra, and in the election post the Government of Ireland Act, which established a, an assembly in Northern Ireland, which is still with us, i.e. Stormont, and also established an assembly in Dublin, which never actually met, there was another election. He's elected for Louth Meath. He becomes one of the Sinn Féin MPs stroke TDs, because obviously he never became an MP for Louth Meath, and uh, was based in Kells, became state solicitor for County Meath later on in life. And claimed or it's part of family folklore or anecdote at this stage, that he had a gun jammed into his back by his erstwhile best friend who wanted him to vote against the treaty. Let's return to Stephen for the backstory of Justin McKenna, a country solicitor who, like many of his ilk before and since, found himself holding political office. In his case, his tenure was brief, but eventful. Now, T.P. Senior's son, one of his sons, was Justin. And Justin, he became a solicitor. He studied law. And he was not actually involved in the Third Meath Brigade as such, but he acted more or less as the legal conciliary to the unit, so to speak. He also took part in the Sinn Féin courts, and his activities were enough to bring him to the attention of Dublin Castle. So I have here his file from Dublin Castle. It is not thought to be a member of the IRA, but is very active as regards propaganda work, attends Sinn Féin courts and meetings throughout his district, and has considerable influence locally. His house is used as a meeting place for Sinn Féiners, and the police advise his removal. And towards the end of 1920, a raid takes place on the McKenna's at Muller. And basically, they find within ammunition and seditious documents. Now, they don't specify what the ammunition is, and I suspect it's probably no more than shotgun cartridges, such as you would have in a farming house. A seditious material materials turns out to be a, a membership card for the Irish volunteers. So arrangements are made for him to be court-martialed. Justin's case is dismissed, very rarely for the times. But then, about three weeks after the trial, the authorities decide that he should be interned anyway. And at that point, he's arrested, taken to Arbor Hill, and he's there for a few weeks, and then to the Rath Camp at the Curra, and he's there with about 1,000 other internees. (laughs) 
the 24th of May 1921, a general election took place for something called the House of Commons of Southern Ireland. Simultaneous elections took place in Northern Ireland. As it happened, not a single seat in the 26 counties was contested. 124 went to Sinn Féin candidates, while four Trinity College seats went to Unionists. The election, if the term is not a misnomer, was used by Sinn Féin as the basis for the second doll. It also helped to secure the release of a dozen of those interned in the Wrath Camp in the Curragh. These included Justin McKenna, who was put up by Sinn Féin as a candidate in the Louth Meath constituency and was duly returned, unopposed. He took his seat as a Sinn Féin TD rather than as a member of the fictional Southern Parliament. This meant that he was in position when it came to the crucial debate on the treaty negotiated by Collins and Griffith in London in December 1921 and put to the vote of a divided doll in January 1922. In the McKenna family, there's an acceptance, an acceptance that the treaty, far from ideal, is the best outcome. So the family decides that they will back the treaty. And in the Doyle at that time, of course, there's tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure on representatives inclined to support the treaty. And uh, one of Justin's colleagues, uh, PJ Rutledge, is putting great pressure on Justin to go against the treaty. And they come up to the process of, it's an open call on the treaty votes, and each delegate is called upon to declare their preference. And legend has it that Rutledge was behind Justin very closely, with a finger or a gun pointing in his pocket at Justin, and basically sort of coercing him into going against the treaty. But in fact, when it comes along, Justin backs the treaty. He and Rutledge never speak again. An often unacknowledged element of the War of Independence involved outbreaks of lawlessness and near anarchy in remote parts of rural Ireland, from which the RIC had withdrawn by 1920. This often took the form of seizures of land and other types of intimidation. Mark Clinton, a cousin of Sarah Clinton McKenna, became the most high-profile victim of just such a land feud during the War of Independence. What you essentially have is a vacuum is created. The Royal Irish Constabulary, who are, you know, traditionally being the police, they're gone. The IRA attempt to organise the Irish Republican police who will come in and do the same job. But really, most of these guys are full-time IRA activists as well. And in certain high-profile cases, like, you know, bank robberies and stuff, the IRA do sometimes track down these these criminals. But really, there is a sense of lawlessness. There is a sense of the breakdown of, of administration. And in that kind of vacuum, you are going to get people trying to settle old disputes, you're going to get a lot of agrarian trouble, you are going to have people who will try and use this breakdown of law and order to their advantage. Now what we have here, three Bureau of Military History witness files and I think we'll start with uh, Sean Farrelly. And Sean Farrelly essentially tells the story of what happened to Mark Clinton. It was unconnected directly to the War of Independence. So just have a look at that. Okay. 
neatly, beautifully typed, double-spaced. With the withdrawal of the RIC from the small barracks all over the county and the state of turmoil in the country at the time, gangs of blackguards got together here and there all over the county to loot, rob and work their will on the people. What a beautiful turn of phrase. Mm. One such gang calling themselves, oh wow, the Black Hand Gang operated in the Newcastle and Tearworker areas. It was composed of men from every organisation in the districts, including the Ancient Order of Hibernians, Sinn Féin, ex-British soldiers and even members of the IRA. Their aim was to get established on the land by brutally hunting people from their homes. The Clintons were a relatively prosperous North Meath farming family. They lived in the townland of Clugga, near the village of Cormine, close to the Cavan border. Frank Cogan has written extensively about how one of their number, Mark Clinton, met his death and on the ramifications of his murder. The best known would have been Pat Clinton, who was intelligence officer and one of the very, very senior men in the Meath Brigade working directly under the command of Sean Boylan, the brigade commander. Then there was Mark Clinton, uh, and then there were two sisters who were very strong supporters of Sinn Féin and the the national aspiration for independence at that time, and who uh, would have assisted the volunteers, the IRA, during the War of Independence period, especially in the latter part of it. The activities of the Cormine or Black Hand gang did not directly impact the Clintons. Joe Clinton and his three sons, Pat, Peter and Mark, however, were drawn into the campaign conducted by the gang against their first cousins, the Smiths, who owned disputed land close to the Clinton farm in Clugger. According to my sources, the dispute actually went back to the time of the Land League period and it involved the control by the Smith family of a certain piece of land. And this land was subject to a boycott by a group of people in the area who appeared to be very, very small holders or perhaps labourers who wanted the land divided and given to some of them. The Clintons were cousins of the Smiths and, in fact, it was apparently with the encouragement or at the instigation of Phil Smith, the owner of the land, that Mark Clinton went out to plough on that particular day on which he was killed. What followed was unique in the history of the Anglo-Irish War. The murder of a Republican veteran not involving the Crown forces dealt with entirely and with ruthless efficiency by the Republican justice system. He was out ploughing with two horses in a field. It was on the 10th of May 1920 and a group of, of people approached from a hill above the land where he was ploughing and it appears that one of them had at least had a gun uh, probably a rifle because they were at a distance of probably about 150 yards and they shot the horses and then it appears that a bullet also killed Mark Clinton himself whether this was deliberate or not it's it's not entirely clear but in in any case it had the appearance of a rather cold-blooded assassination the man who was subsequently identified as the assassin was a young man called William Gordon, who lived in the townland of Killagriff, just a short distance away. But reports indicated that there were five people on the scene of the crime. This, in fact, according to witnesses, this was what was said by the victim just before he expired. 
Frank Cogan's uncle, Seamus Cogan, an activist, local IRA commandant, was incensed at the murder of volunteer Mark Clinton, the more so when it became clear that Clinton had not been the victim of the Crown forces. Meath Brigade Commander Sean Boylan was quickly informed of what had occurred. In the month of May 1920, it was reported to me by the OC 5th Battalion, Seamus Cogan, that a man named Mark Clinton had been shot dead on the farm of his uncle, Phil Smith, at Cool Kilmainham Wood, by a man named Gordon, an ex-British soldier, and that the two horses with which he was ploughing had been shot dead by a man named McGovern, another ex-British soldier. Gordon received the sum of £2 for the shooting from a William Rogers, an ex-South African policeman who had organised a band of terrorists to seize the land. The objective of the gang was to seize this land and divide it amongst their adherents. Boylan was a very, very strong individual. He was from a Fenian background. He came up to prominence through the GAA and the Gaelic League and he was also a member of the IRB and then he took over the organisation of the volunteers. He took part in 1916, but in a peripheral way because, frankly, the countermanding order meant that the operation didn't go very well in County Meath, apart from the Ashburn incident. But in the period subsequent to 1916, he was instrumental in setting up the organisation of the volunteers, what was later the IRA in County Meath, and he was also very, very close to Michael Collins through the IRB connection, but also they seemed to have a very good personal relationship and were in very, very frequent contact through the War of Independence period. He also placed a high premium on good organisation. He demanded discipline. Uh, in the North Mead area, he in fact insisted that the 5th Battalion Command be changed because of lack of discipline and had them punished He also would place a high premium on keeping secrecy and confidentiality. You know what's really fascinating about this is that so often you read that kind of antiseptic line in history books about how the War of Independence and the Civil War was used to settle local land disputes. This is actually that. Mm, This is, and and more vividly than I have ever seen it recounted Mm. anywhere, except it's not Republican on Anglo-Irish ascendancy, it's Republican Mm. on Republican. Absolutely, and this is going on all over the country. I mean, there are plenty of examples of this kind of thing going on. What happens now is interesting. If we come down here, you will find the witness statement of Sean Boylan. That's not father of the Sean Boylan. It is indeed father of the Sean Boylan. Oh, God. Okay, so word was conveyed to me that a man was being tried for the possession of arms. I sent a word was conveyed to me that a man was being tried for the possession of arms. I sent a messenger to the courthouse to find out if it was Gordon who was being tried. I received word back that it was not. I sent the messenger back again. With the same result, I was not satisfied, so I went to Lochran and Woods Drapers in Market Street. Patrick Lochran of Lochran and Woods was then OC 6 Battalion. I inquired if he knew the man being tried for the possession of arms. In a moment or two, Sean Hayes, who was then on the reporting staff of the Mead Chronicle, came into the Lochran and Woods and told me that Gordon had been tried and released. I issued orders that all roads leading from the town were to be patrolled by volunteers and that all pubs were to be searched and that under no circumstances was Gordon to be allowed escape. 
In the meantime, I secured a motor car from Bernard O'Brien, Navin. Just then, I received word that Gordon had been located in the flat house, a public house opposite the convent on the approach to the railway station. I called for volunteers to effect Gordon's arrest. Volunteers Boyle and Keating answered. I instructed them to go to the pub where Gordon was located. I asked for arms and was handed an old thirty-two rusty revolver, the only gun available. I then proceeded alone in the car and got to the flat house before volunteers Boyle and Keating. When I reached the pub, Gordon was standing close to the door beside volunteer Kelly who had found him. At the other end of the shop were two RIC men, Sergeant Wynne from Nobber and another. I drew the gun and shouted, Hands up, face the wall. They obeyed. And um, he was acquitted and he was released and everybody knew that he was the felon. He was the one. Sean Boylan Jr., herbalist and Meath's GAA legend. In both avocations, he followed in the footsteps of his father, an IRB member and IRA commander close to Michael Collins himself. He thought he'd be safe and uh, he was found in a pub because the various members around, of the various members of the IRB, IRA at the time, they went and they found him in the Flathouse pub. And there, there were two of the RIC people were there with him and they were drinking with him. And they were told to stand against the wall and stay there until the boys left. And they took him and they took him away from there. And um, he was brought to Salestown and there was, a, there was a court, a proper court. He was found guilty. Then when he was found guilty, there was a meeting of the cabinet and it went before them to see what should be done. The people involved, Boylan and the judges, were not quite sure how to proceed in the case of a guilty verdict in a murder trial, whether capital punishment could be approved as a penalty. It was felt necessary to refer this for Doyle cabinet approval. And for that reason, it was sent up to the cabinet and a discussion, two discussions took place. In the first discussion, Countess Markovics was contrary to having the death penalty imposed. I think Ernest Blythe had some sympathy also for that position. It was decided initially to refer it for a second trial. So a second trial was held uh, within the next week or two, uh, sometime in late July, early August. But uh, the guilty verdict was returned again, and this time the Dáil Cabinet uh, approved the um, sentence. Gordon was duly executed at Castle Farm, Dunboyne. I took charge. Before his execution, he wept. I said, We have given you more time than you gave your unfortunate victim. If you have not asked the Almighty God for forgiveness, I will give you time to do so. I gave him time to make his peace with God. During the War of Independence, the overwhelming majority of people executed by the, the IRA were alleged informers who had been giving information to the, the British forces. Uh, in Gordon's case, it's because he has, in the eyes of the IRA, committed a, a murder of an IRA volunteer. There are one or two other cases, I think one in Cork and one in Roscommon, where people are executed for being thieves. And basically, they're people that the IRA have abducted, have taken prisoner for a while. The first reason they're abducted is because they're thieves. It may have been also because they've seen in the company of the, the RIC. But really, after they've held them for a while, the IRA decide to execute these men. And the reason for doing it is they're a criminal. They're, you know, in the 
in the way of the IRA trying to maintain law and order and the fact that they've spent a time in IRA custody means they can talk and these are people who are already distrusted. And certainly in the War of Independence it's very unusual to execute criminals for the IRA. During the Civil War it's a different matter and the label spies and informers beware gets replaced in the Civil War with spies and robbers beware. The repercussions did not end with the execution of William Gordon. The Cormine gang had numbered up to a dozen men. Those who had not fled IRA justice were rounded up with the help of Joe Lawless, an IRA volunteer from North County Dublin, who was much in demand in Meath because of his access to a truck. Having carried out the necessary investigations and having marked down those believed to be implicated in the crime, the Meath Brigade was now ready to arrest them and bring them to trial before a Republican court. Sean Boylan therefore called to my garage one evening to say he wanted myself and the truck for the job that evening. I picked up Sean Boylan at the appointed time and we drove on to Dumboyne and Trim, where we picked up an armed party of about 10 or 12 volunteers. Sean Boylan sat beside me in the driver's cab and directed me where to go in his laconic mode of speech, right, left or straight on when we reached the crossroads, and pull up here when we arrived, was almost the only conversation between us during the drive. And occasionally he rapped out a sharp command to those behind in the body to be silent. Having left Trim far behind us, I had no idea where we were when we stopped at Boylan's command near some houses, where some two or three men were quickly placed under arrest, loaded into the truck, and we sped on further north. They decided to round up all the people who were transgressors the ones that were endangering other people and were plundering as well as everything else. And they were trying to disrupt everything. And uh, they were all picked up. And eventually to an old house, it was belonged to uh, people by the name of Dice in Kilskier. Mr Dice had died in 1915, but they went to his house and that's where the court was held. It was a proper court again and they were found guilty and they were ordered to be deported. We collected seven or eight of them the first night including Brian Finnegan, an IRA man. He was the greatest daredevil I ever met. He had helped in the burning of the Muller barracks some weeks before and was caught by the flames upstairs and had to leap from a top window into the street. We found him in his little house, fully armed with a rifle. He threatened to shoot anyone who came near and we knew he was capable of doing so and meant to do what he said. He was captured, however, after a hole was bored in the back of the house. He struggled violently, but Pat managed to get a chain around his body. He then gave in, and we marched him to the lorry. All the prisoners were taken to Boltown House, which was unoccupied at the time. Here they were guarded day and night for about a week, until being transferred to another company area. The co-conspirators were tried separately, and they were sentenced to exile. And the sentences seemed to range from different accounts vary on this and it's hard to be conclusively accurate but they seem to range from between 3 and 20 years some accounts say between 7 and 15 years I think Boyle himself says 7 and 15 years but other accounts indicate that there may have been shorter or longer sentences local sources in the area seem to think that uh, some of the conspirators were sentenced to exile for at least 40 years because it seems that one or two of the conspirators appeared back in the area after 40 years, but were not made welcome when they returned. Following the trial of Gordon on the second occasion, 
the other prisoners were dealt with the same night, or I should say, in the early morning of the next day. All of them were sentenced to three to fifteen years and ordered to be deported, their cases to be reviewed when the occupying forces had left the country. John Kelly, brigade police officer with the help of other volunteers, had them deported in batches of three and four from Dublin, Dundalk and Drogheda. In Dublin at the time, the Great Northern Hotel, North Wall, was occupied by British military. The prisoners were taken to the South Wall and rowed across the river in time to place them on a boat for Liverpool. It's hard to know at this stage just how much bitterness there was at that time. But certainly if you talk to anybody from the area, they'll tell you that the case was remembered and sometimes with feelings of great intensity for decades afterwards. Was William Gordon treated fairly in the context of the times, do you think? In the context of the times, he probably got a reasonably fair trial. Having said that, you would have to say that in the context of our times, you couldn't agree that it was an acceptable way to administer justice. But these were these were very difficult and disturbed times. The facts as they appeared to those involved were that this man had been allowed to get away with, with murder. And murder at that time, no matter where you were, was regarded as a capital crime. So when the court imposed a death penalty, it wasn't altogether, I suppose, surprising in the context of the kind of justice that prevailed at that time. But as I said, of course, it would be regarded as rather rough justice by our own standards in the present day. It's very difficult to actually prove someone is dead without the body. But in a lot of cases, you would actually find the families of those disappeared by the IRA writing in 1922 during the truce period to Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy saying, I know my son has been taken and executed. Can you confirm this in writing? Because I need a death certificate. I need to collect insurance. I need to get compensation. No death certificates exist for either William Gordon or Patrick Keelan, shot dead by the IRA. Both are still noted as missing in a list compiled by the Irish Times six weeks after the truce in July 1921. Although there appears to be little doubt as to the final resting place of Patrick Keelan, whose body seems to have been moved to the McKenna family plot in the cemetery on the outskirts of the Meath village of Minolte, William Gordon, as did many victims of the War of Independence, simply disappeared without trace. In the case of Gordon, who was executed by Sean Boylan or his men in Dunboyne, it was a Presbyterian clergyman, Reverend Mr Irwin, who was sent for from, from Dublin. And it was Ernest Blythe who in fact procured his presence to render spiritual assistance to Gordon before he was, before he was executed. In Irwin's case, he pleaded for leniency to Boylan. He asked Boylan to let Gordon go free and to allow him to emigrate to the United States. But according to Boylan, he was afraid that Gordon would inform on them because he had seen him taking notes during the, during the processes of the trial and so on. And he thought that it would be too dangerous to allow Gordon to go free in those circumstances.
The history show programme Three Killings was presented by Miles Dungan and produced by Lorcan Clancy. We have to say as well a special thanks to the archivists at the Military Archives for their assistance in identifying the witness statements and military pension applications used in the programme. The actors who brought to life the witness statements from the War of Independence period were Manus Hallingan, Mark Manning and Simon Delaney. A podcast of tonight's programme is available at rte.ie forward slash history show or just search RTE History Show wherever you get your podcasts. And the History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.